Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, I like football season, and all the things that go with it. Welcome into today's PFF NFL podcast. Friday, May the 19th. It's Friday. No Steve Palazzolo, but that means the great Brad Spielberger is back in the building. How's it going, Brad? I'm doing great, uh, as you like to say all too often. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, the the kind regards. I think you said I was great three times on Twitter yesterday. Mm-hmm. We're keeping it rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a lot to live up to on this pod. Absolutely. We got some fun stuff to talk about. We're going to dive into this idea of Joe Burrow's new contract, whether or not he's going to leave some money on the table, whether or not that's a good idea in the first place, and generally how you construct you know, a roster once you have that giant second quarterback contract you know, around to, to maneuver everything around from a salary cap standpoint uh, and all those kinds of things. So I think it's going to be a, a fun show. We're, we're right on the precipice of the weekend. Leinster are playing tomorrow, I think, uh, in the European Cup final. Everything's looking up. Everything's looking up. The Brentford Bees are playing well in the uh, the Premiership. Everything's looking up. There we go. Um, but first, if you're looking to organize your financial future, make sure to start with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life uh, provides an easy one-stop shop for all your family's financial needs, offering high-quality term life insurance policies plus other financial solutions in one easy online hub. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy quickly, often in less than 10 minutes. Also has a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Take steps to help protect your family today with Fabric by Gerber Life. Take the 60-second quiz to find out if term life insurance is right for you, and apply today in just 10 minutes uh, at meetfabric.com slash PFF. That's meet, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash PFF. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company and distributed by Gerber Life uh, Agency, LLC, using fabric technologies. Not available in certain states. Price is subject to underwriting and health questions. For more information, visit us at meetfabric.com slash PFF. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash PFF. It's really, uh, it's the terms and conditions that get you every time. You know, Steve stumbled over them on Wednesday, whenever it was. I uh, had a hiccup there. It's those, those terms. You need a terms and conditions guy. That's really the bottom line. 
fast read at the end of the commercial guy that just rattles right. off the uh, yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's a tough job you need one of those guys all right Joe Burrow's contract so obviously it's been incoming since you know it became clear that Joe Burrow was going to be one of those guys one of those elite quarterbacks in the NFL and now we're we're hearing talk that Burrow is uh, the quote was keeping teammates in mind. Uh, his exact quote, I forget where I stole this from, SI maybe, uh, whenever you have guys on the team that need to be paid, that's always on your mind, Burrow said. You want that to be a focal point, we're working to make that happen. So they've obviously got Burrow coming up, they've got T. Higgins coming up, Jamar Chase a little uh, later in the process, but the Bengals are looking at this, trying to figure out how, if at all, they're going to keep this nucleus of the key components of the passing game together. Um, what's your take on this whole Joe Burrow contract deal? I will say, you know, obviously Jamar Chase and T. Higgins are his buddies. I think every time they say something to that effect at the microphone, Joe Burrow's agency yells an expletive <laughs> in their offices. Um, but but nevertheless, look, I think you can, um, with the way you structure a contract from a cash standpoint, you can make things more amenable for your club to keep players around. But I would say, look, when teams talk about cap and how they need guys to take – the cap is not really that big of a constraint. Um, it's more the cash flows and how they're paid out, which we'll get into that a little bit. So, look, I, I do think he's maybe going to be willing to do something creative with how he's paid, but it's also going to take Cincinnati being creative and, frankly, departing from a lot of their precedents because the way you can counterbalance low cash flows in early years, like Patrick Mahomes, is you guarantee money further out into the future than any other contract we've ever seen, and that's something Cincinnati has never done. So starting from sort of step one, do you think that 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 um, do you think that it's even possible, let's start with that, for a quarterback to specifically make it easier for teams to sign other players by, by leaving money on the table, not necessarily from a structure point of view, but actively taking less money to ensure that there is money available for you know, his receivers or his offensive line or whatever it is that, that they believe is important to help build uh, a franchise. Because there's an article out there by Andrew Brandt, who you know, used to run the, the Green Bay Packers salary cap, um, and he effectively argues that it's kind of a myth, this idea of taking less to help a team out. And he, his sort of main point throughout this article is essentially it, it's not about um, the, the cap. It's about cash flow. It's about how much money is, is coming out, not about what the, the salary cap is effectively just the accounting tool and where it's moved around. Um, the, but, but a quarterback taking less money is not really a thing that happens. Yeah, all, all respect in the world to Andrew Brandy does phenomenal work. I think he kind of contradicts himself in that very article. So, look, from a cap standpoint, I completely agree. It's, it is it is an accounting tool. You can manipulate it to an extreme degree. Whenever an owner says the cap is, is constraining their ability to do things, you can point to other teams that obviously go about business a different way and prorate a bunch of money. And yeah, you don't always want to be, you know, the Saints, but you certainly can be 70%, 80% of the Saints um, and still get away with it. But the cash thing he says, he's like, oh, you don't have to take less money and you don't. Obviously, owners, most of them are rich enough to do whatever they want and spend a ton of money. But then he also does say in that article, if you take less cash, the only person you're benefiting is the owner. Again, agreed. If the owner views that then as, okay, I'm being benefited by this player taking less and instead of pocketing that money... I'm now willing to go spend that money on other positions, right. again, just cash, then in, in effect you are helping. So I think that's the disconnect. I and mean, I'll give you the example. 
And it was during COVID, so it was a little bit different. And obviously, it was an unprecedented contract. But Patrick Mahomes, through the first two new years of his contract, is going to make less money than Lamar Jackson will make in the first year of his new contract. And again, I'm not saying either guy should should be forced to do whatever. Lamar has every right to get the structure he wanted, to get strong early-year cash flows. But Patrick Mahomes, because of the guarantee protections, took less cash. And I think it's why Chris Jones was on the franchise tag, got extended. It's why Travis Kelsey got a new deal and so on and so forth. I guess you could counter, well, then why didn't they keep Tyreek Hill? It's a fair counter to that whole you know thought process there. Yeah, but I mean, it does mean it's going to it's going to extend to every player that's on significant money. Like once as soon as you have a quarterback on that big money deal and we'll get to this later on you're going to have to make sacrifices somewhere, you know? But that doesn't mean that the guy isn't still helping you with the structure of the contract in the first place. <clears throat> I kind of agree with you. Like, look, Andrew Brandt ran an NFL team salary cap for years, so who the hell am I to argue? But it, it does feel like in addition to whatever you can do from a salary cap manipulation standpoint and the actual accounting, you can take less cash. Like, you, it's, it's, it's simple. Now, his argument... I think his sort of better point is generally when if a player leaves money on the table, all you're doing is helping the owner. But that doesn't mean it has to go that way. And I think there's definitely like you, it, it does provide the team with more flexibility and more capacity to go and give that money to specific players and maintain you know, a better roster around that guy. Now, it doesn't mean they will. And that might be the biggest stumbling block in this whole dynamic if you're advocating for that as you know an approach from a quarterback right whether or not you're the the quarterback doing it whether you're not you're the the fans making that case hey take less help us out like win a championship the single biggest stumbling block might be you know what is what is stopping the, the owner from just pocketing that saving and not give not reinvesting the money into the rest of the team like connecting the two i think is an important step there of hey I want to win championships. I'm willing to sacrifice some money along the way to make that happen. But you have to work with me here. We have to make sure that that money does get back reinvested into the guys that I need it reinvested into to maintain this roster and to have a championship caliber team. And that, I think, is probably quite a difficult thing to guarantee. That is the key, right? There, there is no reason to give these owners benefits and to help them out. They all can afford uh, the most expensive roster in the NFL and then some. You have to also have the assurance that they are going to take that extra money, that excess, and spend it elsewhere. I mean, the, the example everyone always is going to go to is, of course, Tom Brady in New England. I kind of think it's a bit overblown. He did take, you know, slightly below market deals at various times throughout his career, but I don't think it's as drastic as some people kind of paint it out to be. Never Nevertheless, when he did do that, let's say it took $5 million less per year here or there, they were then turning around and spending that money on other players, building out depth or adding a, you know, a player to, at a position that was a bit of a weakness. So he wasn't just doing it out of the kindness of his heart to Robert Kraft. I know they're close, but also saying, if I'm going to do this, you need to then allocate it elsewhere and tying back to our conversation. I mean, look, I think T. Higgins is in a very tough spot where, again, they can't afford to do it, but do they want to put about $100 million um, in three players on offense, in Joe Burrow, right. T. Higgins, and Jamar Chase, which is what it's going to be, if not more than that. If Burrow says, look, I'll take less, then T. Higgins better get extended this offseason and not go into a, a contract year, maybe a franchise tag. Like That needs to happen 
frankly, before Burrow signs, in my opinion, to have the guarantee, the assurance that they are going to use your savings elsewhere. And the chances are, if you're taking less cash, if you're taking less money in the deal, you are probably also increasing the cap flexibility just as a matter of course, right? The numbers overall are lower. Obviously, the, the two are not necessarily linked one for one the, the accountancy can be or the <clears throat> the salary cap accountancy can be moved around it can be uh, manipulated in a whole variety of different ways I mean just look at the various different quarterback monster deals and the way they're structured differently right there's a whole world of different ways of doing this but if you're coming in with the ballpark uh, you know, like rule of thumb of hey I'm going to take 10% less than I could get not only am I going to take less cash, but we can also like that will help the cap along the way. So yes, and and, and you know in every deal yes, but it's going to vary the amount uh, you know the the degree by each club, and that's where Cincinnati gets interesting. So Cincinnati does not, and they've had exceptions for quarterbacks, but. In a general precedent, they do not guarantee any money outside the first year, outside the signing bonus of their contracts. And so what that requires then is players often get these large roster bonuses in the second year of their deal. Roster bonuses all hit the cap in that year as opposed to a prorated bonus uh, because the players need protection and need more upfront cash to say, well, look, I have no guarantees, no assurances beyond the first year, maybe the second year, um, just because of the size of the bonus. Therefore, I need to get more cash earlier on. If Joe Burrow is going to say, okay, we're going to try to help you from a cash and in part a cap standpoint, they need to break precedent and be guaranteeing money in the third and fourth and so on year of this contract, whether that's a rolling guarantee, you know, which is where it's not guaranteed at signing, but becomes guaranteed at a later date. Or, or whatever the mechanism may be, that's where Cincinnati would, would also have to give and kind of work w within their own parameters as well. From a cash standpoint, I mean, you hear all the time about there being a couple of owners in the NFL that are very sort of cash poor relative to certainly some other owners, but relative to the league generally. It, it, are the Bengals an ownership that need some help if they're going to if they want like let's say in an ideal world they want to sign burrow t higgins and jamar chase all to long-term big money contracts and keep that group intact for as long as they can humanly do it given the money they've already given to you know orlando brown and trey hendrickson and whoever is this an ownership group that actually does need some concessions in terms of cash flow in this joe burrow contract to even feasibly make that happen because you know, the, the money that needs to get thrown in escrows and all those kinds of things. Again, right, I'm not here to make excuses for owners or to, or to, you know, push out their talking points that they use and frankly often are probably a bit facetious. But, yeah, I mean, I think the Bengals are bottom five in, in you know, liquidity among owners. I think that's probably a comfortable, um, you know, range for them to be. So, and look, even Hendrickson, if I'm Hendrickson, I'm looking for new money this offseason. Sure. Uh, he, he's already outplayed his deal and he's going into the third year of a four-year contract. So, I mean, again, I won't use the word need, but like, will they, if they don't get help, then say, okay, well, Hendrickson's going to play out his deal and he's gone. We're going to cut Joe Mixon, which maybe we think they should do anyway. But like, they're going to start, you know, saying, oh, well, it's tough, but we then can't keep this guy. Should it be a woozy going the last year of his deal? He's gone. Mike Hilton going the last year of his, like, they're going to start then saying, well, here are the ramifications of taking care of you three, um, which again, might be a lie, might, might, might be unrealistic or unfair of them to do yeah. but you know the owners are, are obviously not here to give out handouts you know willy-nilly that that is very evident you're right need is a good 
distinction because there's a difference between I don't have that cash right now to make that happen and I am unable to generate that form of liquidity because like, again, as a man with an intimate, familiar working of the, the brain of a billionaire, right? Like the way this whole works is you have billion dollar companies where you have no real cash, you just borrow against it. You get a giant sum of money at a really cheap rate because you own billions of dollars worth of equity and whatever, right? Every one of these owners owns a franchise that is worth billions of dollars. And if they want several hundred million dollars in liquid cash, it's pretty easy to achieve that in today's markets. Like they would be able to drum that up without any problem by borrowing against a portion of the franchise that they're sitting there with. That, that doesn't feel like it would be an issue at all. Interesting thing there. So to a degree, yes, but actually part of the many, many, many lawsuits and issues with Dan Snyder is, is there is a limit. You're only allowed to kind of leverage your franchise to a certain degree with loans. Yes, you can do it. They obviously should let owners do it to a degree, especially these kind of you know family uh, founded or, or organizations like the Cincinnati Bengals. But there is a cap on how much you can do it. Yeah, they probably could do it here, um, especially with as it relates to escrows. You mentioned earlier, right. have to put some cash aside for future fully guaranteed money. But again, the way they've avoided that is just never giving future fully guaranteed money. Um, so, so it all will be interesting. I think both parties here need to be very creative, uh, and, and I think they will be. If you are so. A lot of times people seem to treat this as like a moral imperative, right, of players should never leave any money on the table. You, you should never, you know, create a team-friendly structure so that you can try and win the championship or whatever. Like, it feels to me that once you're in the realm of generational, you know, hundreds of millions of, like, eight-figure contracts, then what difference does it make? Like, Patrick Mahomes is unquestionably leaving a large sum of money on the table on a rolling basis throughout this contract. On the other hand, he's making a large sum of money. He's got it practically guaranteed through, you know, through the duration of this thing. And it does help the team maintain a championship caliber roster around him. So what's the downside? I would just <laughs> look, I, I totally get the argument. You hear it all the time. I have this conversation with like family members and stuff. I, I do get that as fan of sports, we, we also come back from a foundation of we want to relate to these guys. We want to see ourselves <laughs> in them and all those things. It is very easy for the American populace to make that argument with millionaires why don't we make it with billionaires? Okay, right. you could also say, why does you know uh, Paul Brown need to make this amount of money? He could make a little bit less this year, still have an asset worth $5 billion um, that he can sell at any point or, or do whatever he wants. So, so I get it. I hear you. I, I just think it's very, it's much easier for us to do that. Um, you know, with the look, yeah, they're still making generational wealth. Patrick Mahomes' great grandkids are going to be wealthy individuals, but. But, you know, Paul Brown's entire family lineage for the rest of eternity, if he holds on to the Bengals, will be will be billionaires. So is your argument essentially that um, independent of the cash, the cash considerations that you're leaving on the table with any contract, that they could a fully max market deal could be manipulated enough against the salary cap if they wanted to do that, that you leaving money on the table as a player, as Patrick Mahomes, is not it's it's essentially free concessions to the team like they would already be able to manipulate his deal as much as they wanted that there's no reason like they're not gaining anything else other than other than the free saving for, of for him to leave money on the table like they would already be able to maintain a roster around him yeah 
Yes, that, that, that is really what I'm saying, is I think you are kind of giving an owner a concession they don't really need. Again, there are examples where maybe they could go out and add a player that makes a difference. So it's not, you know, a complete black and white thing. There is some gray to it. But, you know, the argument would just kind of be like you're doing a disservice to the players behind you. You want your contracts to grow at the same rate as the salary cap. You know, they I think the players got absolutely annihilated in the latest CBA agreement. So already the owners are getting a, a strong piece of the pie from revenue sharing and many other things they're doing we now have gambling revenue there's now 17 games more playoff games all these things and i think the owners quote unquote won um in basically every single you know aspect of the of those new revenue streams so yeah again it can't help you can't do some things like i said i do think the chiefs maybe with a chris jones who was you know one of the best defensive players in all of football last year maybe he plays out on the tag or or gets tag and trade or something else happens Mahomes comes in takes this incredibly team-friendly deal probably the most team-friendly contract in the entire sport which I know again sounds crazy to fans to hear that about a 10-year 477 million dollar <laughs> extension I'll tell you every single team in the NFL would tell you that yeah. uh, all 32 cap guys would probably agree with me on that standpoint but um but yeah so so in the margins yes but I think owners have done a good job of kind of creating this public narrative of like well, we'd love to be contenders, but you know, we'd love you know. The, I mean, the Jerry Jones, all respect in the world to him, he's better than anybody at it. And, and if he was just more, uh, he's not. He doesn't spend. He really doesn't. And it's kind of funny. We view the Cowboys as this like, oh, they'll do whatever it takes, and he's dying to win every single year. Hasn't really shown that, you know, financially. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, it's funny. I find like the argument that I find that the the yeah the argument that you sort of owe it to the next generation or the other players in the NFL. I find that a weaker argument than the one of you know. I mean, in my opinion, as a player, your hierarchy of interest should be yourself and your family above you know other people, other players, the, the future generation or whatever. So sure, it would absolutely benefit those, but that's kind of like, that's the NFLPA's job, right? That's not your job. Your job is maximize what, what, it, what maximize your benefits, which that is where you get into the argument of, well, what is the most benefit for you? Is it the money? Is it the chance to win the championship? Is it a combination of both? It's that balance to me that you're, you're sort of, you owe it to try and maximize, not necessarily the, the next generation. But Okay, we had a question. A few people asked this. Justin Rose is the one that I've pulled up here. Once you have that quarterback signed to the big contract, you know, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, uh, Jalen Hurts now, Lamar Jackson, once you've got that guy locked in to the big money deal, how would you, if you're GM Bradley, Steve's not here, can't have consultant GM, but GM Brad, how many of these high price deals can you afford to give out after that? How would you target in terms of, you know, position value? Would you try and just spread the money around the rest of the roster? Like what would your approach be in an ideal world once you've got that one giant piece locked in? 
Yeah. And the big thing for me probably is being very proactive in many different ways. So first and foremost, I don't think you can extend the like good but not great players unless it is a very team-friendly deal or you do an early extension and it works out in your favor where you're still getting potential surplus value there. Um, but like, you know, you look at the Chiefs, like Juan Thornhill is a good player, but like maybe you skip out on giving him, you know, $7 million a year. If you have a, a Tyron Matthew year before that, very good player, good veteran. But you kind of start with some of those spots kind of, you know, saying, hey, you know what? We'd love to keep him, but we need to save some of this money for the Chris Joneses of the world, for the true difference making you know, premier position players um, only. And I think that's one start in the draft. I think you have to. And you go look at the Chiefs, go look at the Eagles. Since they've signed these guys or since they've had this quarterback clearly as their guy, they're taking receivers, defensive linemen, and tackles uh, in the first couple rounds, like uh, time and time again. And then they're going off-ball linebacker and corner and safety and all those things kind of in, you know, rounds three through seven. So um, you, you do. I think you have to just – be very, very understanding of the fact that you need surplus value elsewhere on your roster. Otherwise, you can get in a tricky spot where you become Atlanta and you have Matt Ryan, but your offensive line is not good. Your defensive line is the worst in the NFL. And yeah, you have some good receivers and corners, whatever, but you're so bad in the trenches, nothing else really matters. Um, so yeah, that's the big thing. And, and then I mentioned, you know, you can extend guys, but you look at Philadelphia and yes, this was before Jalen Hurts, but Having Jordan Mailata on a $16 million per year deal is $5, $6 million below market now. Having Josh Sweat on a $14 million per year deal, both of these early extensions before the guys had really shown a ton, um, some injuries for Josh Sweat, it, they're, they're just now you can afford them because you do not go, and not to pick on Dallas and Jerry Jones again, I think they are <laughs> a well-run organization in many ways, but – they tried to win every single negotiation and, and would go to franchise tags with Demarcus Lawrence, with Amari Cooper, with all these guys, like always waiting till the end. And then those guys got top of market, got the best possible deal, including Dak Prescott, who gets the four-year $160 million deal, no tag clause, no trade clause. He's already due for an extension right now and, and has all the leverage again. So you have to be proactive and, and get deals done early if you do want to keep you know, some foundational pieces that aren't obvious you know, tackle, edge, receiver, etc. So this is obviously a question that has like depends on the position, the money you're giving up. But w again, once you've got that quarterback piece locked in, how many top of market deals do you think you have room for on the roster at that point? Like if you're taking this Rams approach of like stars and scrubs, you know the quarterbacks making top of market. Like how many more guys can you even realistically target for that kind of contract? Yeah, I think it's like five or six, maybe maybe five to eight range. You know, and I think for them, a good example is, yeah, Cooper Cup, Aaron Donald, no brainer. Leonard Floyd, I, I don't, and he actually was fairly productive. But, you know, you saw Dante Fowler get very good numbers. Then he signs elsewhere and does nothing. Like the Aaron Donald effect of, of all these players, you see it in action. And I think you kind of chase bad money, um, you, you know, with, with deals like an Aaron, Leonard Floyd. Allen Robinson is a good player, but you know, you, just why have another expensive receiver uh, when you have Cooper Cup? And he's a good player, but coming off a down year in, the, in that standpoint, it was kind of a value, I think. Obviously, we projected him to get a whole lot more money than he did. So, you know, maybe I'm kind of contradicting myself, but you just have to really pick your spots again with that, that tier right below the elite. I think you not have to go stars and scrubs, but what New England started to do, for example, was when they won their Super Bowls, the second time around, the, the trio in the late you know, 2010s, 
they led the NFL in contracts between a million and three million. Like they had a ton of like above average veterans, but they didn't have a lot of those like seven to twelve million. Like you know, like they just kind of went like very good players. Your Gronkowski's, your Brady's, whatever, and then just like hey, let's just churn through above average depth have just good football players at a lot of different spots. that They got creative, and I think it's why they were able to win a bunch more rings again. So you hear a lot of the times, um, you know, analytics people have made this point before. I forget what the exact percentages are, but their argument is effectively when you look at the percentage that a quarterback affects winning, you know, how much war, how much the quarterback himself individually drives winning games – the percentage of the salary cap that they currently get paid, even at top of market, is an underpay, right? That theoretically, they should be getting an even greater percentage of the salary cap and even more money relative to how much they're moving the needle versus anybody else. So are you kind of of the opinion that even the salary cap is not the constraint? What's actually the constraint to teams right now is bad or good player evaluation. So the problem is not we don't have enough money to go around. It is identifying the guys that you need to give the contract to early, you know, the, the early extension. It's making sure you don't blow a reasonably top of market money deal on a guy that's not going to be a good player for you. And, you know, having that problem sitting there on the salary cap, like if you just were good at this, <laughs> if you just correctly identify talent across the board, even your own talent, not the draft or anything like that, you have plenty of money to go around. Yeah, no, it sounds easier said than done, but I do. I, I think there's an area where, like, Andrew Brandt and I agree 110%. Like, yeah, these guys are making less, and, and it's not – you can't not add talent. You need to just not make a bunch of boneheaded decisions and, and make awful draft picks. Where you're making first and second rounders that are giving you nothing less. It's not that it then becomes impossible to spend around these guys. That that's just not the case. Um, so yeah, no, I, I agree with that point 110%. And I think even again, like th- there are different solutions to different teams. I think something Kansas City's done, which has been interesting, is once they get into kind of outside the top 50, guys like a Creed Humphrey, guys like um, you know some of the line off ball linebackers they've taken, Nick Bolton, etc. I think what they're saying is okay. We're picking so late now, and yeah, these aren't premium positions, but if we can get a guy in a rookie contract that just enables us to kind of ignore spending on some, you know, interior offensive line, an off-ball linebacker, and safety with Juan Thornhill, etc., we're not going to extend these guys. I'm sure Creed gets extended, but I wouldn't be surprised if none of the linebackers get extended. We saw Juan Thornhill leave, etc., but let's lock in the best prospect we can at a non-premium spot because that's where we're picking. And then we'll spend and kind of, you know, first round swings will be edge. We'll take some swings elsewhere. There are different ways to do it, but I think that was very smart where they said, yeah, we can take the 20th best edge rusher at 64th overall, or we can take the number one center in the class and Creed Humphrey. Um, and, and that's, I think, been a solution for them so far. Is is it accurate that those top-of-market quarterback contracts now, the, there seems to be a wider variety of breakdowns of, of structures of those deals than there has ever been before? Like in the past, it felt like every contract for the quarterbacks were more or less the same, right? You were basically just talking about how many years exactly are we dealing with here. But generally speaking, every contract looked more or less the same in terms of how it was structured. Now you've got these wild variety of you know the Deshaun Watson contract versus the Patrick Mahomes contract like this whole breadth of different ways of juggling these contracts for the the different ways that NFL teams manage their salary caps 
A hundred percent. It's honestly kind of funny. I think in the same way that we're seeing teams approach fourth down decisions and stuff like that differently, contract structuring, just roster construction, a general sense is is changing dramatically. I mean, even just the ability, or sorry, the willingness for teams to trade players. We had twice as many deadline trades this year as any other year in the entire rookie wage scale era. Like teams are just changing how they approach sunk cost and, and, and optics and dead cap and all those things. Um, you know, frankly, because teams like Philadelphia and Los Angeles have kind of just pushed that forward and shows you it's kind of nonsensical to care that much about those things. But yes, I mean, the Mahomes thing changed everything. It then led to the Josh Allen deal. The quarterback contracts used to just be four years. We right. want to get back to the market in three, a relatively standard structure, of course, based on the club. And now, yeah, you get the you know the the super long ones change things, and we're now getting a push back to the shorter term deal, which you know in my opinion is much better for the player. So, last uh, question to cover today, we had a question come in from Ben Jennings. Um, you do a lot of work with contract stuff with agents, all those kinds of things. So, this guy was asking, do non box score stats, you know, advanced statistics, say? Uh, inform contract valuation yet? Have teams started valuing performance on plays where the player didn't directly interact with the ball carrier uh, or the ball in a consistent, systematized manner? How long until things like GPS stats, sort of tracking data, starts informing these contracts? So it still feels like the league very heavily leans on the classic, you know, old school box score statistics, you know, things like interceptions, sacks, and Hell, even Pro Bowls still get folded into these contracts as default incentive type things. Are we in a world yet where people are actually putting targets or, you know, using these advanced stats, which do tell a better story um, or at least tell a more accurate story into these contract negotiations? First point I'll, I'll address is the tracking data, and I think this, frankly, was a win for the players. I would characterize it as such in the CBA. You're not allowed to discuss player tracking data and the data you get from the chips in players pads and things like that in a contract negotiation that is in plain language in the cba and i do think look if you're a player saying you know what i'm playing through an injury or i'm tired or whatever and then i come into practice in my facility where i'm supposed to feel safe and and appreciated and all that and i have to know that if i don't you know gas that they're gonna we're gonna get to a contract negotiation they're gonna say well your speed on tuesday was you know 12 miles an hour like i I think it was smart of them to not let be in there so look are both parties probably looking at it and then trying to somehow bake it into their valuation without actually explicitly mentioning it probably yes but but it cannot be discussed or you know and again of course enforcement is more difficult uh than actually right. you know and anything to do with with uh nfl contract negotiations but nevertheless that that's my piece there unfortunately the answer is no um it is still largely a conversation of traditional volume stats it's slowly creeping along i think it is becoming more and more a part of the analysis um i should say like you know maybe you're still you're getting some yards per route run or you're you know you're getting some some more advanced statistics where it's not literally just like he had 50 catches for 800 yards and six touchdowns but i'm not you know advocating pff grades but even just more like advanced data epa things like that in, in no way shape or form from my understanding, is that a, a significant part of any conversation? Do you, who, which side do you think should be pushing it? Because if you're a player, right, surely a pressure total is a better target to be aiming for than a sack total, which can be completely and totally random, effectively. Like, you could have the same season as you had a year ago, and the sacks could disappear, or they could come, you know, and show up randomly because you got a bunch of cleanup plays. 
surely you're way better looking at your history and saying, I got five years of 50 plus pressures consecutively. That seems like a pretty realistic target to hit next year. 10 sacks could, could be a coin flip. So, so two pieces there. I think one reason why right now it's tough to get away from the traditional stats as well is because there's actually a list of things you're allowed to use as incentives. Okay. And yeah, this is different from baking in base value, but that list, you know, it, sacks, interceptions, fumbles, it, it's stats. It's normal, normal stat. I think yards per attempt is probably the most advanced, like, you know, good stat in there that I think we would agree actually makes sense to use. Um, I think the issue there is that unfortunately – our pressure numbers and NFL next-gen stat pressure numbers can be off by 10 pressures or, you know, the pass rush win rate, us versus ESPN. And I'm not making a value statement on anyone's. Obviously, I think we do, you know, the best job with these things um, and have a tried and true method and and constantly try to improve it and all that. But I think that's the hard part is you can't argue with receptions and yards. You can say, well, the team's just going to use the most favorable number to them. The agent's going to use the most favorable number to them. Um, And I think that just kind of sometimes gets you bogged down uh, a little bit if you you tried to go that heavy into the stats. So to be clear, is it a case of, you know, we just can't agree on the the source to, to use as the official stat, or they're literally not allowed to use these stats that are not official NFL stats? Totally can. There, there's no limitation on, you know, it's really just player tracking. And I think it has to do more with just if players are willing to give teams, you know, the ability to learn from this and develop sports science methodologies from their chips and their shoulder pads and all that, they don't want it then weaponized against them. No, you can use all these stats. Look, I, I know for a fact that we create, you know, you know, uh, information and, and things for agents to use and they have shown it to clubs and it includes every PFF stat you've ever seen. My answer is more tied to like, is there ever been a conversation where a team said, all right, this guy's worth 10 million. And they said, well, his, his true, true pass rush, uh, pass rush win rate from PFF was 20%. And this guy's was 18. So he should get more. And the team says, yeah, you're right. We'll add another million. I I don't know if that has ever happened before. Right. So in theory, there's nothing like stopping them if they actually agreed, you know, to use whatever source as a official designator of pressures or, you know, past breakups or whatever the hell it is, agreeing on that number as an incentive and using that, that as the baseline, right? You know, if you get 50 pressures this year, you get an extra 500 K and for the purposes of this contract, pressures are defined by PFF or by whoever else they want to define it by. Not for incentives, uh, unfortunately. The, the, the CBA says, like, these are the okay, only so categories you it can, is you can barred. create an incentive for. It, right. Yeah, but but I will say this. Look, just to go back, like, they're definitely now, look, no one is is looking at PFF statistics and, and saying, oh, we're going to ignore this. Like, no, if it gets mentioned, they're going to talk through it. It's going to be a relevant data point. It is certainly going to inform the conversation. Um, it, it definitely has swayed, you know, like, you know, for especially for trench guys, where sometimes it can be hard to come, come across statistics. Right. I think offensive line, a big one, no doubt. PFF certainly has influenced and heavily swayed the value of a deal. I think it's more just there is not you're not putting in like you just said. That is kind of what I'm pushing back on. Unfortunately, you know you kind kind of can't really do that. Right. That's the point I was trying to clarify because it always yeah, struck yeah, me yeah. as weird that we were still stuck on these really, really like broad, bad statistics or <laughs> events. You know, like a Pro Bowl nomination. It's because they're they're stuck with a list that they can use and they can't for incentives go into this like more advanced and more accurate world of things that would actually make more sense to use. 
Not to rag on the NFLPA, I guess I haven't been too mean to them Hammer. today, but uh, another Hammer thing them. that I think was just horrible for the last CBA, you're now tying fifth-year option value amounts to Pro Bowls. And, and you can massively influence, I mean, this offseason, for example, C.D. Lamb earned a raise of, I want to say, three and a half to $4 million on his fifth-year option because he made his first Pro Bowl this year. If you're a player that gets drafted to the Jaguars or whoever, like you just – those awards are media awards. They're name recognition awards. If you're a first-round pick, you're obviously way more likely to get it. You know, I don't know if Max Crosby's made Pro Bowls, whatever, but like he's better than, you know, most first-round edge rushers the last couple of years. I don't know why in the world – and frankly, the NBA and other leagues are worse about it, but why if you're a player organization would you let these popularity contests determine the whole cold hard cash in your deal? I have no idea. It is wild that the Pro Bowl is still used to actually change money for people given what yeah. we know about how the process works. You know, the fan vote, the fact that like just a – the the size of a team's social media following or, you know, the fan base is going to directly affect the players in the Pro Bowl. It's nuts. Um, like, the best example, I think, is Mitchell Schwartz, who between first and second team was a conse- four-year consecutive All-Pro and never made a Pro Bowl. Like, it's just it's ridiculous. It makes no sense that people are still putting those in contracts and being happy about it. Like, to the degree where if you're a representative for a player – I mean, if you're not on a team that has one of these, you know, giant monster marketing arms, you know, that are fan bases and marketing arms and social media followings, you'd be nuts to put that in a in a in a contract because you could get jumped for some guy that just happens to play by the cow for the Cowboys. Exactly. No, 110 percent. And it's it's still in every single deal for the most part. A lot of the incentives which is, again, why you, you, you get these up to re- uh, amounts reported. Oh, he could make a max value of X, and, of course, that number comes out first. Yeah, well, if Joe Schmo is going to make a first-team All-Pro, he'll get an extra million dollars. The odds of that happening are, I don't know, 2%, um, and that gets reported, and everyone kind of it sticks in their minds. And, and realistically, there's a very close to 0% chance that money is actually ever earned. All right, that's going to do it for this week. That was the PFF NFL podcast. Monday, Steve's going to be back in the building. And I believe on Monday, we are doing our expansion draft. Uh, We have a guy that set up the entire thing for us. Incredible spreadsheets involved. We are each going to create a fictional expansion team. And we're going to draft a, a full team, Steve and me. And then I think... The good people at All22 have uh, offered to create those rosters for us and essentially monitor how they do during the course of the season. So we will find out whether GM Palazzolo or GM Sam is actually the better personnel guy based entirely off the 2023 NFL season. So looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a fun episode and a fun thing to, uh, to monitor throughout the season. Who's your money on, Brad? Who's going to do better? Steve's got those models and all and all his spreadsheets and everything, so mm-hmm. it's tough to go. But look, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you the nod, Sam. I think he's gonna be <laughs> overconfident. You're gonna swoop in there and make some some smart, sound uh, additions to your roster. I yeah, like Steve's the guy, you know, with the models and the spreadsheets and all the data, and I'm gonna be the guy just drafting off vibes, you know. And sometimes yeah. <laughs> that comes in your way, right? Sometimes it works out in your direction. And then you parlay I mean, in fantasy that. Fantasy football. Who the guy who shows up with the with the big spreadsheets and the papers. Right. And this guy's a value and his ADP yada yada. And you have the buddy who like doesn't even want to be in the league and doesn't check his roster yeah. for the last four weeks. That guy wins more often than the first guy. So. And then you just you parlay that into the giant second contract, and then you get fired after a year and you retire. It's perfect. That's my that's Boom. my game plan here. <laughs> 
All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Brad, thanks for showing up on, uh, when were you, Tuesday? Was that your other show? Uh, Yeah, sounds right, yeah. Tuesday and Friday, big part of the show this week. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you Monday.